But what happened was, many times, I, I just sat there and I said, I can't believe that this paradise exists. And at least for the moment, I'm a part of it. That was probably the most profound realization that I had, besides just loving the time that I got with my guys. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 197, I interview Kurt about his thru-hike of the Holy Cross Wilderness with his boys. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is sponsored by BiotropicLabs.com, custom formulators and sports performance supplements for active people like you. Designed for everyone from weekend warriors and outdoor enthusiasts to high-level athletes, if your body moves, you need Biotropic. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. Today, I thought we would do something a little bit different and talk to Kurt about his recent thru-hike of the Holy Cross Wilderness uh, earlier in the month of August. Um, Kurt, this was your first time out actually doing a, a, a technical thru-hike, right? It was my first thru-hike. I've done a lot of backpacking, and I think you know that, but I've done a lot of out-and-back type stuff. But I've dreamed for a long, long time about doing a thru-hike of the Holy Cross Wilderness, and it just took a time commitment that has been very difficult to uh, to free up. So this is the first time I had the opportunity to do a thru-hike. The boys were old enough to come with me, and we decided we better take the opportunity while we had it. Yeah, I want to talk, to, talk about the boys in a second here, but so... You said you've been thinking about doing this for a while, and you had told me about it in the past. Uh, when was the first time you had come up with this idea to go through this particular area, and why? You know, I was exploring the Holy Cross Wilderness um, 20 years, 22 years ago. That's a long time. And I hiked into a lake that is just a, one of my favorite places to go to, spent a couple of days there and hiked back out. But looking at the mountains that were around this lake, I always wanted to see what was on the other side. And so we're talking about over 20 years that I've wanted to hike over those mountains and just keep going. But there just aren't any trails, and it takes a lot of time, so I was never able to do it. So the lake being Middle Lake, right? Because I remember you telling me going back about going back in there on a few different trips and how beautiful it was and showing me pictures. I have not been back there myself, but obviously it's something I would like to do. So yeah, it was Middle Lake, and to be candid, my sons told me I shouldn't tell the the Adventure Sports Podcast community that it was Middle Lake because they think it's their best-kept secret, but hey, it is <laughs> available for the whole public to enjoy, but it's tough to get to, and matter of fact, it was funny. As we drove in on a, it's a pretty rough, slippery four-wheel drive road, even to get to a trailhead there. Um, as we were coming in, there were a bunch of logs across the road. And at first I thought, wow, they must have had some crazy weather to wash all these logs across the road. And then I realized, no, someone else has been dragging logs across the road to try to keep people out. I think it's one of those areas oh, where people are trying to keep it a secret. 
And it is wonderful because very few people get in there, and uh, that's what makes it so nice. So we just ruined it for a whole bunch of people, locals up in the, the Vale area, didn't we? <laughs> I think we, perhaps we have. But warning to our listeners, you know, the the road getting in there does require four-wheel drive. Not only that, but four-wheel drive experience. It's not just a road that you need, you know, a high-profile vehicle for. There are conditions in which if you're not an experienced four-wheeler, then you probably shouldn't get in there. So just a warning, it's not easy. Yeah, right. Not for everybody. Well, you were telling me that, you know, your your wife had dropped you off in there and you were a little bit concerned about her uh, coming back out. So you had her drive in just to make sure that she could get through some of the, the mud holes and, and stuff just to uh, to make sure she could get back out and feel good about it. So I guess she made it out because you, you continued hiking. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So Anne has not done a lot of uh, driving with four-wheel drive. She's done a lot of four-wheel drive trips with other people driving, and so she has done some off-road, so she has some experience. But I wanted her to drive in there in case anything was just too tricky. You know, we'd figure out what it was and negotiate it together. So as she was driving back out again, she would uh, have a strategy. And turns out it was pretty pretty scary for her, actually. It was a big stretch for Ann to drive in there. And... uh I think she was pretty nervous about making her way back out, but she did. She did really well. So That's cool. So it was a little mini adventure for Anne as well. A big one, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the boys. Now, you took uh, Caleb, your oldest, because he was back in town from college, and you took Dan, your, your expert fly fisherman. So how did these guys feel about uh, setting out on such a long hike themselves because they had just done small backpacking trips, you know, day or, or overnight trips with you too. So what was their thought about going and, and you didn't take Luke. So what was his thought about, you know, what, what made him stay behind, I guess? Well, I think we have to talk a little bit more about the distance and the route to answer that question. But Caleb had done, I think his longest backpacking trip had been six days, which he did with the Outdoor Leadership Program. Mm, yeah, And I had done five days, and I, I hate to admit that that's all I had done prior to this because um, I had always dreamed of doing weeks and weeks. I did uh, sleep out of a tent for seven weeks once, so I've done the extended trips, but just not backcountry, unsupported backpacking. And Daniel's longest trip... I think had been about four or five days as well. So it's not that they've never been in the woods for an extended time, but doing a through hike for nine days was a record setter for all of us. So um, here's the thing. As we started studying the maps for how to negotiate from Middle Lake to where we wanted to come out at Missouri Lakes, we realized we had to go over, let's see, one two, three, I'm remembering three mountain passes above treeline, and we ended up going over other passes that were above treeline as well by the time it was all said and done. But the biggest thing was the valley that is immediately east of Middle Lake, um, that valley has... the. Let me say it this way. There's a whisper of a trail. You can see a trail on a map there, but there are even warnings that the trail vanishes. And the reality is you, you almost have to count it as no trail because you really can't follow it. It just goes away, you know. 
and there was no trail to get into that valley. And to get out of that valley, I called the ranger, and I mentioned this on an earlier show, but I called a forest ranger for a Holy Cross Wilderness, and I, I said, well, how do people traverse through this wall of 13ers? Because it's like 30 miles of 13ers, and they are precipitous. They're not the high-domed rocks. They're the the cliff faces, the glacial-carved, jagged mountains that really chew the sky, you know. And the the ranger said, well, I don't know of anyone who's ever done that. There is no trail, <laughs> and um, don't know that it's really doable. I don't know that that's a thing, you know. And so I started studying the maps, and it looked really, really cliffy. And then we pulled out Google Earth and started looking at the satellite images, and again, really, really cliffy. And we realized that if there was a way through without ropes, without turning it into a full-blown technical mountaineering adventure, if there was a way through, then it was through a saddle that was at 12,400 feet with cliffs on top. And Luke, who's 12, um, he was a little bit nervous about it. And frankly, I was a little bit nervous about it. We did not know if we were going to make it over this pass and if we didn't make it over the pass, then we had about a 12-mile hike out to a trailhead that uh, we'd never started from. And it would, you know, it would be the end of our through hike. So I think that Luke looked at it and just thought, you know, I'm a little lightweight for this one. And I, I told Luke, I will do what's necessary to make you successful if you want to come along. We'll figure it out. We'll help carry the gear. We'll make it happen for you. But if you're hesitant about it, then probably it'd be better for you to wait on this one. And he agreed he was hesitant, so he didn't come. Dan was pretty gung-ho. Caleb was gung-ho. But we knew, Travis, this is one of those things where if you are really determined that you're going to do it, then you'll probably succeed. But if you're questioning whether or not you really want to, then you shouldn't try because it took real solid determination to uh, actually make this route. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I I would agree. I wouldn't have taken my son Harley. He's also 12. I wouldn't have taken him on it. He's not ready himself. And, you know, in fact, I got to be completely honest. I would probably have gone with you uh, had I had the time available, um, but I would have had to, to second guess my, my ability to, to conquer that because you guys did some pretty serious hiking and, uh, and uh, some pretty serious ascent, you know, vertical feet. It was a lot of fun, and it, it turned out to be as rewarding as I thought it might be, as I was dreaming about it for all the years. But the funny thing is, you hike in on the Missouri Lake Trail. I'm sorry, let me rewind. You hike out on the Missouri Lake Trail. You hike in on the Middle Lake Trail, which goes over a pass at Treeline and drops down into the valley. And as soon as you kind of hit the valley floor, that trail vanishes. You can't even make it all the way to Middle Lake on trail. So another warning to people that want to try Middle Lake, um... The trail is ranked as one of the hardest trails in the Holy Cross Wilderness. It's very, very, very steep, and it does disappear as soon as you get to the valley. So you're going to have to be able to find your way uh, through the forest with uh, no trail to follow if you want to get to that lake. So anyway, we were off trail before we even got to Middle Lake, and we were not on a legitimate trail again for seven days. (laughs) <laughs> wow. Well, let's back up a little bit. We keep mentioning Middle Lake and Missouri Lakes um, in Holy Cross Wilderness, but for those who don't live in Colorado, where is this located? Uh, if somebody was looking up on Google. Okay, well, Holy Cross Wilderness is uh, 
a beautiful wilderness area, very, very lush because it's very wet, very cold, <laughs> but it is uh, south of Edwards, Avon area, Beaver Creek area, along I-70. If you go south, eventually you end up in the Holy Cross Wilderness, and it's bordered to the east by Highway 24 on the Minturn side. It's actually a down some dirt roads is where the border would be, but so if you think about it kind of being southwest of the Vell Valley, then you're there. It's a large wilderness area, and it's one of the highest wilderness areas in Colorado with a lot of uh, average terrain that's above tree line. And like I said, a lot of really precipitous mountains, glacial carved, really, really beautiful stuff. But um, that's where it's located. And Middle Lake is south of Edwards on this four-wheel drive road. And our route was to go... From Middle Lake, we had to pass over some high peaks and drop into the next valley over to the east. And then we needed to go south on that valley. And there's a series of high alpine lakes that we visited that were kind of offshoot valleys from that one. And then we had to cross through the bottom of the valley and back up to what we called the Crux. And that was where we had to climb to 12,400 feet without a trail and try to make it through the cliffs at the top to get to the next valley. And the next valley had no trail, so we had to um, go around a cliffy mountain called Middle Mountain to actually hit a trail on another valley, and that's where we got to a trail again, and uh, from there on, we had pretty decent trail, but like I said, it was days of hiking just to get that far. Right. Well, that's funny, as you described the, you know, being bordered by Highway 24 on the east, you and I do a lot together, a lot of these activities together, but we also do things separately. And it just so happened that um, I couldn't go on this trip because my dad, uh, mom and dad were in town from Florida that particular week. And I took a four-day motorcycle trip with my dad, as I usually do each year. And I was going up Highway 24 on Monday, uh, Monday afternoon. And you had just left that exact area um, on Sunday afternoon, I was kind of looking over there to my right, thinking, yeah, Kurt and the boys, they were just here, you know. We keep finding ourselves kind of playing out in the same areas around the same times. I think our uh, our trips out to the San Juans uh, earlier in the, the summer also overlapped. You guys were out there about the same time that I was out there on a motorcycle. So it's kind of funny. We keep ending up in the same play areas. Yeah, and Colorado is a huge place, and it's not that we're going to the same places on purpose. Um in neither case did we plan it, and we realized that we'd both been on the same four-wheel drive road in the San Juans within a day of each other. It kind of cracked us up, but that's what happens sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it does. Well, let's talk about the uh, the spot tracker a little bit, because as I, as you, you and the boys were on this this through hike for nine days, uh, I was sitting here working. Uh, waiting to go on my own vacation, but I had given you my spot tracker. And then the cool thing was I could sit here and watch your progress, you know, as you, you started out, cause you guys were good about hitting that button and to, to show Anne where you guys were and that you're okay. And, but I got to see it too. And, um, to watch you guys go in and make progress throughout the day and then, you know, stop at a lake and have a, a down day, um, was neat to see. And then, you know, that crux that you keep mentioning, you know, that, that one piece that you weren't sure if you're going to be able to, to make it up and over that or not. 
to watch you go, you guys go up that and uh, and get up and over. It's kind of a little bit of a, a celebratory thing for me as I'm sitting here working away on my computer. I look over like, oh, they made it. That's pretty cool. So <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you about having the spot tracker with you. Did you... Uh, you think you think it was worth having? I mean, obviously, I would think for your wife it was. Were there pros and cons to it? Did it kind of give you a little bit too much of a, a sense of uh, a kind of a, a lifeline or a fallback? What were your thoughts on now that you got to carry it with you? Yeah, that's a very leading question because you know me so well. <laughs> <laughs> so I love adventure. And when cell phones first came out... um. Obviously, they were too big and bulky to carry into the woods, and there wasn't coverage anyway. But as coverage improved and the cell phones got smaller, I always left my cell phone in the car when I would go backpacking. I didn't want an out. I figured if I got myself in trouble, it was my own fault, and I'd better get myself out. Now, that's kind of ridiculous, right? Why not be safe? And But now that the spot tracker system came out, I was like, man, should I take one? Because I'm such a purist, I want to leave all the technology at home. The problem was the crux. I didn't know if we could actually make it over. And if we didn't make it over, I needed a way to let Ann know that we weren't going to come out on the trailhead, you know, where we had planned to come out. Otherwise, she's going to be 60, 80 miles from where we actually are looking for us and getting really worried. So I thought, you know what, out of courtesy for Ann and so she'll know where to pick us up, we better take the spot tracker. And so I would turn it on every day so that Ann could see it, so that you could glance and see it. And it was kind of weird for me actually to think, yeah, someone can watch me online here. <laughs> right. You know, I'm just, I, I'm not really into that, but it was kind of funny when I got back to, to hear the stories from Ann and from you saying, oh yeah, man, we saw you guys do this. And what was that about? <laughs> there was, you went in circles for a while and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of fun. But the reality was, Travis, it added a stressor for me it was kind of nice to know if we had an emergency that we could get help, but we were careful. And I really believe that the key is to not have emergencies, you know, but things can happen that's unexpected. And one of those things, I want to talk about the bear line stuff later, but one of those things is I started getting really nervous about our food. This wasn't the kind of through hike where there are facilities we could thumb a ride to, you know, to resupply if necessary. If, right. if if our food got spoiled, then our hike was over. We would have to hike with empty stomachs for probably, you know, 12 to 20 hours just to get out so we'd have food again. And so anyway, that was one thing because I thought, wow, man, easy, small things could, could foil this trip. But back to the spot tracker, um, it, it added a, an element of uh, anxiety me, and here's why. I was kind of concerned that an artificial uh, SOS could be transmitted, and it can't. It has flaps that cover the buttons where you could push the SOS button, and so I was really careful. I never even touched the flap that covered the button because I didn't want to accidentally trigger a search and rescue party, but here's the thing, and I told you this, but I got to tell everybody. I turn on the spot tracker, just the tracking feature, so it would report our position. And two different mornings, within 20 or 30 minutes of turning on the tracker, search and rescue showed up. They were flying over in a small airplane, and I thought, that just seems too coincidental. And so it kind of freaked me out. But I finally came to the conclusion, and I might be completely wrong, 
but we were in a part of Holy Cross that they don't get to fly very often. We were in a part of Holy Cross where they need to learn the lay of the land and the mountains. It's a very hazardous place to fly. And I was theorizing that maybe they saw that there was someone hiking in there, and they said, hey, let's just go see if we can spot them because we need the practice. And then you were saying, well, you're not sure if it was publicly accessible for them to even see where we were. You might be right. It just seems so coincidental. I would turn it on. 30 minutes later, they're flying over, waving their wings at us. Yeah, it makes for an interesting experience nonetheless. <laughs> All right, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was uh, the biotropic pills. Um, I've, I've reported really good experiences with these things, and I don't bring it up as a sales pitch, but more so for our own listeners and their adventure experiences. You know, if these are people that can benefit for some, from something that that really does give them this edge that I want I want them to know about it and to try it. And again, like I said, it's it's completely aside from trying to do any kind of advertisement. Craig doesn't even know we're gonna we're talking about it. But I've had good experiences from it and I wanted to ask you, uh this is your first real endeavor other than that that James Peak hike, uh, that you got to try these things on. So what did you or you guys think about um the energy supplement. Did it help? Did it not? I did take it on the trip. And what I reported from James Peak was that, you know, I have strong days and I have weaker days. And when I did James Peak, it was a strong day. And whether or not that was due to the to the supplement, I couldn't say, but it, I certainly had a strong day. And on the backpacking trip, I have to report the same thing. I had strong days consistently, but the the funny story wasn't really about me. On day... Seven. We had a pretty good distance to cover. And Daniel is 14 and a half years old. And he's just now hitting his big growth spurt. And he's pretty much a slender, tall kid. He's about 5'9. And he's not put on his, his man muscles yet, you know? So to see him carrying <laughs> a, a big pack, I mean, the pack, we actually added it up, and his pack weighed a third of his body weight. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was amazing how well he did. I just have to say that he, the kid just, he busted his butt and did a great job. But on this morning, we had just started. We'd only gone about a mile, and we had a long distance to cover. He had to stop because he was cramping. His legs were cramping up, and I thought, oh, no, we're in for it. If he's cramping after the first mile and we have all this distance to cover today, we're in trouble. So I reached in my pack, and I pulled out a biotropic, and I said, eh, who knows? It has vasodilation and, and B12 and a bunch of other stuff that might help to reduce the, the cramping. So I gave him one, and he drank some water, and we rested for about 10 minutes, and we took off hiking again. You know what? For the rest of the day, we forgot all about the cramps because he was fine. He was strong, and that day we had to climb over a 12,400-foot pass again. So it seemed like it, it was very helpful. Okay. Well, cool. I, I was just curious um, about that. I, like I said, I don't want to turn it into a, a commercial, but I was curious what your experience was. So, cool. Biotropic is a biological sports performance booster supplement created by Craig Dinkle, an Olympic trials athlete, to help him train at higher levels more efficiently in order to gain a competitive edge. 
All natural and safe, Biotropic packs your body with the highest grade quality of the B-Sweet vitamins, offers blood support, higher oxygen-carrying capabilities, an ATP booster, and vasodilation, which delivers more healthy blood content to hard-working muscles. Craig has the credentials to back it up. He twice qualified for the Olympic trials, set four NCAA records, and earned 23 All-Americans. Today, he uses Biotropics to help him train in the gym, scramble up mountains, and to prepare for a six-month through-hike of the Continental Divide Trail. Athletes and exercise enthusiasts, check out Biotropic at biotropiclabs.com, where our listeners can get a deep discount by using the code ADVENTURE. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for more than 20 years. The snow is melting and the crags are drying out. Time to break out the hiking boots, rock climbing shoes, and tents. Gear materials and designs are more evolved than ever. From the latest ultralight gear to the tried-and-true classics, Bentgate has the premier brands for climbing, hiking, and camping essentials, including Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice on destinations, getting started, or on fine-tuning your quiver of gear? The Bentgate staff are all passionate adventurers who can give you the data and advice you need. Bentgate is also hosting numerous events and speakers this summer, so please check out their events page at bentgate.com for more information as well as to see their full product selection. talking about protecting food and uh i wanted to bring up the bear line because you had some some stories and information about using the bear line and the 1a stove while on this trip yeah well for our listeners travis and i um you know that we have the 180 stove we have the 180 flame and we have the bear line product and we've been testing all of our products that we've designed in the wilderness for years and years and years and i've been using the the bear line for a long time so but I learned new things about all of our equipment while we were out there, and I'm not surprised. The more that you use a piece of equipment, the more you learn. But, Travis, we're going to have to change our user's guide because we recommend that people put the bear line on trees like 30 or 40 feet apart. And what we discovered was that we can choose a couple of trees that are maybe 15 feet apart and it makes it so much easier to deploy the bear line. And then when you put a lot of weight on it, um, the trees tend to, to sag if you get the bear line up in a, a top of a tall tree, right? The trees lean in, and then your food tends to droop. But whenever you have the trees closer together, then it really minimizes that. And so it was much more useful to use trees that were closer together. And that was something that was kind of a surprise. But when we started using the bear line on trees that were closer together, then it worked out really well. And man, am I glad we had it. I started worrying about something spoiling our food. It didn't have to be a bear. You know, you're always thinking bear, bear line. We didn't see any bears. We saw some bear scat, but I mean, they were around. But it could have been a deer. It could have been a moose. It could have been chipmunks rats. I mean, who knows, right? But 
I started worrying that, man, if something got into our food, then our trip is effectively over. We're going to be in trouble. And so having the bear line really, really helped. And one morning, um, I, I got up early. They, the guys were still asleep. And I thought, well, I'm going to make my coffee on the 180 stove, and I'm going to go grab the bear line. So I walk up to the bear line, and I'm lowering the food, and I slip and almost fall down. And I look down, and I'm standing in a pile of it. <laughs> I don't know what the animal was because it had the runs. But whatever it was, was trying to get to our food in the night and failed. And, of course, I got its refuse all over my foot. But anyway, I was glad we had that bear line because it saved us. Literally, our trip would have been over. Yeah, whatever it was, it was interested in what was hanging there but couldn't get to it. Well, that's kind of the the nice thing about that bear line is, you know, a lot of places it says, you know, you need to figure out a way to to get your food out of reach of bears. And sometimes you have to bring a canister and those canisters are large. They're not light and they're bulky and they're a pain to carry. So if you can carry this bear line in with you, in with you you're talking about 13 ounces and, you know, a pack that's probably, what's our bag? Probably four inches by eight inches, something like that, four inches by six inches. Um, so you have something you can get your, your food up out of the way and uh, keeps it away from the bears, and you can do a nine-day through hike and not have to be concerned about coming out the other side starving. Yeah, for sure. Well, that was just kind of funny that the bear line did save our food for us, and we appreciated that. Um, one of the lessons learned is that to use it with trees that are a little bit closer together, it really does help. And uh, also, start setting up your bear line early. It's really tempting on a long hiking day. You know, you're, you're having dinner. It starts to get late, and it's tempting to wait to put that bear line up until you're done with dinner and, and it's really bedtime. Well, it's so hard to work in the dark in the woods like that, tripping over stuff and uneven ground and everything else. So I can recommend to people when you get to um, camp, whatever it is, then pull the bear line out, set it up early, while you have plenty of light, then go cook your meal. And that way it's ready to hang the food as soon as you're done. And that way you can get to bed faster. Right, right. Now you guys predominantly cooked with the 180 stove. I guess you had the the stove and the flame out there at the same time, right? Yeah, so here's what's interesting. Um, the 180 stove is a natural fuel stove. For those of you who may not know, you burn twigs, grass leaves, you know, whatever's available to burn is, is what you're going to cook with. I love that because you don't have to carry fuel. However, there are some uh, restrictions. There's a part, actually two different parts of Holy Cross Wilderness where they will not allow people to build campfires. And the 180 stove can be used where it leaves no fire scar. You can use an ash pan to catch the ashes. You know, there are lots of ways to do it, which is a, a leave-no-trace approach. But I still didn't want to have to explain to a ranger why there was smoke coming up out of my campsite in an area where campfires were not allowed. It's right. a $350 fine. So if you're going to one of those areas, you're going to have to have another alternative. And so, Travis, we took a little alcohol burner with us, and we also took a canister and a microstove. So Caleb had the, the microstove, Dan had the 180 stove, and I had a 180 flame and the alcohol stove. And, you know, like they say in the prepper community, uh, two is one and one is none. So we thought we might as well have a, a fallback anyway. Well, here's the moral of the story. One night, it had been raining all day. We'd been hiking in the rain. We were exhausted. And it was really, really sopping wet. We were up at about 11,500 feet. It was already dark. And we could hear the rain coming again. 
we decided we wanted to cook as quickly as possible and then dive under our tarps. So I grabbed the alcohol stove first time. I just grabbed it and thought, well, I'll try the alcohol stove because everything's so wet. I know I could build a fire, but it might be easier just to use the alcohol. We went through 16, well, 14 of the 16 ounces of alcohol that we had with us to try to boil enough water for the three of us to have dinner. And it just didn't burn hot. It was so hard to get lit. I had to put a puddle of alcohol around the stove and light that so it would heat the stove enough that the stove itself would light. We fought that thing and fought that thing and fought that thing. And you know what, Travis? I was... So frustrated, we just barely got our dinner. The rain did come. It rained almost all night, hard rain. The next morning, I got up and grabbed my sopping wet sticks and had a wonderful breakfast with wood, fire, and it worked. I was like, forget this alcohol crap, you know, because the 180 stove just performs really, really well as long as you know how to make a, you know, a, a twig fire even in wet conditions. And I'll always go with it. I don't know why I even took the alcohol stove. It was a waste of weight. <laughs> well, it's funny. Our experiences are, you know, can be different. I use alcohol with my 180 flame a lot, actually, on my motorcycle trips. And it always works really well. But I think you and I, as we talked about this, one of the big differences is on those trips, I'm cooking for myself. So I have my little 180 flame. I have... Uh, my alcohol stove up underneath there, which is, uh, to be completely candid, is just one of the beer can stoves that you can make for as an alcohol burner. That's what I use, and it works awesome. So I put that under my 180 flame, and it works great. It boils my water in seven to eight minutes, and I have my food, but it's just for me. I'm not trying to cook for three or four people, um, and I haven't personally had any uh, altitude or cold weather issues with it to date. Um, but that's the, that's the nice thing about these stoves is they're, they're versatile. You can use alcohol, you can use wood, you can use Esbit tablets. I mean, you can use multiple fuels depending on altitude, cold, time of year, all of that stuff. Patience. (laughs) Yeah. Well, wood was certainly the way that, that we went. And I have to tell you, it rained on us day after day, after day, after day, after day. We were in wet conditions, um, most of the days and we're still using a wood-fired stove as our go-to device. We had other options, and the wood was the best option. Yeah, right. So let's talk about uh, some funny stuff. You had some animal encounters that that uh, you were telling me about. There was a, a deer and, uh, and a little baby moose with a mom around. <laughs> yeah. So the moose story I actually told on Monday's show and uh, but I'll I'll retell it just because I think it's funny. If you missed Monday's show, if you already heard this story, I apologize. Maybe you'll get a chuckle. But we were at a lake. Um, trying to remember which one. I guess it was Harvey Lake. And there was a deer that was just, I mean, really, really determined to get to our food. And this deer kept coming up to us. And I thought, man, someone must have fed that deer at some point. I mean, obviously where we were. There are almost no backpackers that go in there. The deer could not have been frequently visited by people. Maybe that was part of it. Maybe we're the first people had ever seen. I don't know. But this deer was way too friendly. And so this doe kept trying to come into camp. And so finally I told Caleb, well, we've got to restore the balance of nature here. And so Caleb picked up a stick like a spear. He wasn't going to throw it. But he went chasing after the deer going, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> it just cracked us up. 
So anyway, we we chased the deer off a few times, and she started keeping her distance after that, which I thought was important. You know, they say a fed bear is a dead bear. That really is true. It's the same thing goes for deer. They don't eat the natural foods foods around if they think that they have a, an easy way to get food from people. So we didn't want the deer to get so close. So anyway, that was the deer story. The moose story was the next morning. We sleep in tarps, Travis, like you know, because we want to minimize the weight. I also like being open to nature. And when I'm inside of a tent, um, I feel closed in. You can't see what's going on. You hear things you can't really see very well. Well, with a tarp, you can pretty much see 360 degrees if you set it up right. So one morning, early, early, just after sunrise, wake up to this tromping. Boom, 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 boom. I'm like, what is going on? So I, I look out from under the edge of the tarp, and there's a baby moose. And so I whispered and woke up the boys. I said, do not get out of your sleeping bags, but look at this. So this baby moose is standing there, and then... I noticed that the mama's peeking around a tree at us. And I'm going, oh, man, we've got a mama moose and her calf. And this could go bad real fast. It could be potentially be a very dangerous situa- situation. Female moose will protect their young. And if they get startled, they can trample you to death in a heartbeat. They are big animals. I mean, This female moose was probably six and a half feet at the shoulders. And, uh, you know, they're, they're just huge. But we were laying there being real still and quiet, and the baby moose was, saw Caleb and walked up and stuck his nose forward, and he, it was like the moose was squinting to figure out what Caleb was, and Caleb was looking at the moose, and they're just locked eye to eye. <laughs> and we're like, oh, please, don't do much more. Don't do much more, you know. And the baby moose spooked a couple of times, and when he would, he was, you know, all legs, and no balance. It would just tromp and stomp and, and trip all over everything. And the the only funny thing was I had left the 180 stove out, and it was clean. It wasn't even in our bear line because it was completely clean. But the, the, the cow decided she wanted to know what it was, so she went up and licked some of the ashes off the top of the 180 stove. And I laughed and said, I probably have the only 180 stove in America that has been licked by a moose. <laughs> Very well could be. It's so cool spotting moose. It's it doesn't happen all the time, but uh, every once in a while you just come across one. In fact, uh, Harley and I were riding up in Wyoming. I took him up to Medicine Bow um, National Forest this weekend, and I came around the trail yesterday and uh, was stopped in my tracks because this massive moose was just sauntering by on the trail. And I mean, this moose didn't get spooked or anything by the sound of my, my dirt bike. He just kind of walked by and looked at me and said, welcome to the forest and <laughs> carried on. But Man, it was so big. cool. Yeah, they are. It's just awe inspiring when you come across, when you get that close. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a ton of fun. It really was. And this through hike, you know, I want to throw out there a couple more things that were just big takeaways for me is having that much time in nature away from the busyness of the modern world. We didn't see another soul for eight days. And we did see a, a boot print here and there. Didn't know how old it was, but we did say, well, someone else came through at some point this season, you know. But we were that remote. And uh, just to have that time to kind of unwind and chill out and to be with my my two sons that were along with me there 
And it's fun because, Travis, you know, parents often feel this pressure to get this great quality time in with their kids. And I heard someone say years ago, and I want to repeat it, it's not, you can't get quality time by design. You can only get quality time when you have a quantity of time that you spend with your kids because you really can't plan it. And when we had that much time to sit around the stove or to sit around camp or to fish or to hike, you know, the conversations we had, the the fun memories that we made and man, it was it was just a delight. And I encourage any parent, man, get get somewhere with your kids where all the distractions are gone, where you just have each other and just see what naturally develops. It was a wonderful experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you were good to, to add in a few down days around the lake. I mean, obviously, uh, Daniel must have absolutely ate that up with uh, all the fishing uh, available to him at those down days. Yeah, I should give a fishing report just because it was so fun. Uh, <laughs> Daniel, knowing that he was going to be out there for nine days, thought, I'll bet you I can catch more than 10 fish a day if I try really hard. Of course, Many of those days, we hiked for nine hours, ten hours, or more, so he didn't have as much fishing time, but he thought he could get a hundred fish, and he almost did it, Travis. He caught 90 trout on his trip. <laughs> insane. I still haven't caught it. a single trout on my fly rod in the state of Colorado, <laughs> and that kid goes out there and almost busts a hundred. Yeah. Well, he's really good at it. That's a lot of it. Caleb probably caught close to 30. And, you know, if, if Dan catches three and Caleb catches one, Caleb's done really well. <laughs> yeah, right. And so I didn't catch that many because I had to stop fishing. I started, ended up getting a back cramp, and fishing made it worse. So anyway, but 90 trout, and we ended up eating five, I think it was. And I mentioned that because, you know, we like to protect the the natural fish that are in these backcountry lakes. But we would go into these places where the lakes were just full of beautiful, large 14, 15-inch trout. And uh, we did eat, like I said, about five and nine days. And we came up with uh, a new recipe that I want to share with everybody because it, it was really, really great alternative to the dehydrated food. But that said, we weren't there to eat fish. So it was catch and release, and uh, it was it was really a lot of fun. Dan did a great job. It was really, really, really fun. That's cool. Yeah, so you put the, uh, I think the recipe you're talking about is the, the salmon stew. You put that up on Instagram, and a lot of people liked that. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, trout stew. Um, oh, yeah, so... you didn't catch salmon. Did you? <laughs> I didn't catch salmon, not this time. Well, the other thing is it, it just goes to show the versatility of the 180 stove. So... What we decided to do is to try to make a stew, and here's why. You cook the trout, they're delicious, but trout are very, very lean, and we were starving for calories on this trip. We thought, well, you know what? If we could boil the trout into a broth, then we'd get all the fat out of the trout, and we could do other things too to to really get everything instead of just a few flakes of meat. So what we would do is gut the fish, and we would roast it over coals on the 180 stove, which you can't do with regular backpacking stoves. You need something like the 180 stove to pull that off, and that's one of my favorite things about it. But we would roast the fish there, and we could have just eaten them. But instead, we would then take the meat off the fish, drop it in the mess kit, and in that we also had, uh, this may sound gross, but it's really not, think about it, there was a female that had some caviar. We put that in the mess kit. We put the fish liver in the mess kit. It sounds gross, but it's not. We even put the skin in the mess kit to boil off the fats. 
And so then we'd boil it for a while, and we added a good hunk of butter and then some paprika and some garlic, some salt. And then we would, just like you would do with any broth, we'd pull out the stuff we didn't want to eat, you know, and left the meat in. And I'm telling you, Travis, that was the best soup I've probably ever had in my entire life. And when you're starving for calories, it was an excellent way to get a little bit of a bonus away from that dehydrated food. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it looked amazing. I think what we need to do is plan a trip up to Alaska, take Dan with us so he can catch those salmon that I wanted to be in that stew and then make up that same stew with the salmon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Hey, Adventure Sports Podcast listeners, we have a great deal for you. Stock up on 180TAC products and save 25% on anything in your cart now through Labor Day weekend. Go to 180TAC.com and use the coupon code ADVENTURE to save big. It's never too soon to grab a Christmas present for your favorite adventurer or for yourself. Hurry and do it now. The coupon code ADVENTURE is only good until midnight Pacific time Monday, September 5th. The Bearline Plus by 180TAC is the handiest Bearline utility cord system you can find. This is not your typical Bearline. Our lightweight cord system is designed to be compact, lightweight, frictionless, and very versatile. Don't risk losing your dinner. Hang it the right way. The Bearline Plus is designed to suspend food between two trees up to 40 feet apart and 15 feet above the ground with much less effort than other Bearlines. Not only does the Bearline Plus keep your food away from bears, it is designed to be useful for many other needs including a motorcycle and ATV recovery system, tie-downs, straps, backpack repair, guy lines for tarp or tent, a tow line, block and tackle, and much, much more. Find your Bearline Plus at 180tech.com or retailers near you. Well, I think we covered the funny. Let's, uh, before we take off here, let's cover uh, a little bit about the, the good and the bad. So what was your best experience out there in these nine days? I expected, I anticipated that I'd have some big revelation, that I got away from society and the busyness of life enough that I would probably come away with some shocking, new, profound truth. That's just kind of the way I roll. And I'm not sure that that happened. But what happened was, many times, I I just sat there and I said, I can't believe that this paradise exists. And at least for the moment, I'm a part of it. That was probably the most profound realization that I had, besides just loving the time that I got with my guys. But it was saying that, that paradise does exist. It's still there. Untouched wilderness. So beautiful. And that I had the wonderful opportunity to be a part of it, to uh, to sit there, to watch the the Alpen glow as the sun would rise against the peaks, or to watch Mars as it cut across the sky at night, or to uh, see the fish swimming around in the lakes, whether you were fishing or not, just watching the fish as they would swim around through the lakes and seeing the moose and the deer, um, life experiences. You know, hitting the rhythm of the trail, 
it that was that was wonderful. I would say that was probably the high points of the trip. Very cool. Well, you did uh, grab some awesome photos and share those on Instagram. So those of you listening in, go check out uh, Instagram and look for Adventure Sports Podcast out there to see some of the Kurt's uh, Holy Cross Wilderness trip photos. Uh, definitely some pretty cool stuff up there, including that uh, trout stew. Okay, so what about um, a bad time? I mean, it sounds Ooh. like a pretty good trip. Did you? Uh, was there a particular day or moment that you just thought, "Ugh, this is not what I set out here to do"? <laughs> I, I have a handful, and I won't go into a lot of detail. But the rain. There was a lot of rain. Um, it was not really a downer. We anticipated having rain, and I tell any folks, make sure you take rain pants with you backpacking. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Which we did. But had we not had rain pants, it would have been miserable. We were above 11,000 feet for all but about five hours of these nine days. And it was cold. We had frost at night. It was getting down below freezing. And it was rain, 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 rain. We had hailstorms, lightning storms. But the day that we had to cross over the mountain out of Middle Lake to start the new part of the trip, um. It was thundering at sunrise. I thought, oh, you've got to be kidding me because we had to go up to tree line to get out of there. And so, man, we were we were just like, what do we do? How do we get out of here? We don't want to go above tree line in a lightning storm. And so we started piddling around the camp and it would rain and rain and rain. And finally, the thunder stopped. The rain kept going, but there was no more lightning. So we took off hiking and... It rained and rained and rained and rained, <laughs> you know, but we got over tree line. And finally, when we broke to the other side of the valley, the rain stopped. The sun even came out for a few minutes, but all the rain was difficult. There was, uh, I guess, two or three different times hiking off trail where we had to go down areas that were full of cliffs. And the way that we found our way through these cliffs was to follow game trails. You know, the deer and the elk figure out ways to get around the cliffs. So we figured if they can do it, we could do it. And so we would find a game trail and use them to guide us. And that's how we got through some areas that otherwise, I don't know, man, you'd get tangled up in the cliffs and the drop-offs. And we still had really challenging days. We had days where we hiked for nine hours and covered less than three miles. Wow. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) It was tough. Very, very steep terrain, challenging terrain. But we had remarkable times as a result of that. We uh, tripped across an old prospector's trail from years and years ago, and there is even a, a gold panning pan laying beside the trail that fell off of some mule, you know, and that kind of thing. It was kind of fun because it's not a trail on a map, and it wasn't even an established trail for hikers. It was just something that we happened to cross in the middle of the woods. Uh, that's cool. That's neat to to get back there in an area where people don't, often go and just think about, you know, the, the history of the area. You talk about the, the panning pan, you know, and you think about what happened there. You know, did somebody drop that thing and they were just exhausted and just said, you know what, forget it. We're done with this whole gold panning thing. <laughs> Throw know? that away. I'm done. How do, you, how do you not know you left that behind? You know, those kind of things. But it makes you think, you know, we ran across a uh, an old mine yesterday, you know, on the trails and you're just standing there taking a break, looking at it and just wondering and thinking about the history behind that, that simple mine and all the activity that must have been there once ago, once uh, a long time ago. Oh, yeah. The history is amazing. And that was going into a valley, and the head of the valley was a giant peak, a 13er, called Gold Dust Peak. So it kind of made sense, you know, that there would be a 
some some prospectors that had been in that area. But I got to tell you another going for lead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got to tell you another uh, interesting kind of scary story. I gave a how to climb a mountain podcast a few weeks ago, and I talked about lightning danger. And one day, this was actually about the five hours that we were below 11,000 feet. We had to drop down and go through a deep valley to get back up to the crux. And as we went down into this valley, it started raining. Imagine. Um, and it started raining hard, and then it started hailing. And because we were in the valley floor, we got under some low trees where there were lots of trees, and we weren't at a high point, and our trees weren't high trees. You know, We took shelter under these trees, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes or an hour, and the hail came and the lightning came, and, man, every clap of lightning would echo eight, nine times. But finally, the rain let up enough that we decided we could hike some more. And as we uh, broke out of the trees to a meadow, we saw smoke coming up not far from us where lightning actually struck the ground and, and lit a small fire. That's that's pretty close <laughs> proximity <laughs> to be dealing with uh, lightning like that and to, to spark a fire out there in the middle of the wilderness. Little little freaky, I would think. Yeah, and it was just a spot fire, and it put itself out, of course, because everything was so wet. But. Right. I guess the point of that is just that lightning danger in the mountains is very real, people. And uh, it was exciting. It always is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool, man. Well, it was fun to listen to the uh, the trip report in more detail. You had filled me in the other evening about it, but we were off doing other things and um, couldn't spend too much time on it. So I appreciate you uh, taking a little bit of time out and telling uh, me and the listeners more about it. It sounds like it's something I need to, to get out there and do next time with you. Hopefully the, the trips don't overlap this time. Well, cool, Travis. Thanks for asking the questions and giving me the opportunity to share what turned out to be a just a... a a lifelong memory. You know, I dreamed about this trip for over 20 years, and I have no doubt that I'll be enjoying it for the next 20. Yeah, no doubt. I'm sure your your kids will love to be there by your side doing the same thing. Well, to all our listeners, I hope you enjoyed that uh, trip report of Holy Cross Wilderness and Kurt's trip. So until the next episode, get out there and try something new. And Kurt? Yes? Until the next episode, get out there and have... (laughs) Until the next episode, get out there and have some fun. There you go. All right. (laughs) You have heard all the hype around paleo, low-carb, organics, diet powders, and the like. How does one sort out what really works? Good news. Gary Collins has done the homework for you. Regain and maintain your health and live that life of vitality. Learn more at primalpowermethod.com.